0: Hello, this is Father John Arthur Orr, Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 34th installment on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, the 133 talks prepared by Pope John Paul II and delivered between the years 1979 and 1984. We're indebted to Professor Michael Volstein, whose edition we're using, Commandment and Ethos. Continuing our cycle, we take up again today the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular the statement, Whoever looks at a woman to desire her lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. In his dialogue with the Pharisees, Jesus, appealing to the beginning, see the earlier analyses, Theology of the Body 1 at 2 through 2 at 1, said the following words about the certificate of divorce. Because of the hardness of your heart Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Matthew chapter nineteen verse eight. This sentence undoubtedly contains an accusation, the hardness of heart, indicates that which, according to the ethos of the people of the Old Testament, had given rise to the situation contrary to the original design of God, Yahweh, according to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And it is there that we must seek the key to interpret the whole legislation of Israel in the area of marriage, and, in the broader sense, in all relations between man and woman. When he speaks about hardness of heart, Christ thus accuses the entire interior subject, so to speak, which is responsible for the deformation of the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, he also appeals to the heart but the words spoken here do not seem to be only words of accusation. We must reflect on them once again, setting them as far as possible into their historical dimension. The analysis carried out so far, which aimed at bringing the man of concupiscence into focus in the very moment of his coming to be, in the first point, as it were, of his history interwoven with theology, was an extensive and mainly anthropological introduction to the work that must still be undertaken. The next stage of our analyses will have to be of an ethical character. The Sermon on the Mount, and in particular the passage we have chosen as the center of our analyses, is part of the proclamation of the new ethos, the ethos of the gospel. In the teaching of Christ it is deeply connected with consciousness of the beginning, and thus with the mystery of creation in its original simplicity and wealth. And at the same time, the ethos that Christ proclaims in the Sermon on the Mount is realistically addressed to historical man, who has become the man of concupiscence. The threefold concupiscence is, in fact, the heritage of all humanity and the human heart really participates in it. Christ, who knows what is in man, John chapter 2, verse 25, cannot speak otherwise than with this awareness, from this point of view. What predominates in the words of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28 is not accusation but judgment, a realistic judgment about the human heart a judgment that has, on the one hand, an anthropological foundation, and, on the other hand, a directly ethical character. For the ethos of the gospel, it is a constitutive judgment. In the Sermon on the Mount, Christ turns directly to human beings who belong to a definite society. The teacher, too, belongs to that society, to that people. In the words of Christ, one must for this reason, look for a reference to the facts, the situations, and the institutions with which he was familiar in everyday life. We must analyze these references, at least in a summary way, so that the ethical meaning of the words of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, comes out more clearly. Yet, with these words, Christ turns in an indirect but real way to every historical man, taking historical above all in its theological function. This human being is precisely the man of concupiscence whose mystery and heart is known to Christ, for he himself knew what was in every man. John chapter 2 verse 25. The words of the Sermon on the Mount allow us to establish a point of contact with the interior experience of this man at every geographical latitude and longitude, as it were, in various epochs under different social and cultural conditions. The man of our time feels himself called by name in this statement of Christ no less than the man of that time whom the teacher addressed directly. In this resides the universality of the gospel, which is not at all a generalization. It is, perhaps, precisely in this statement of Christ, the one we are analyzing here, that this point can be shown in a particularly clear way. In virtue of this statement, the human being of every time and of every place feels himself called in a manner that is adequate, concrete, and unrepeatable, because Christ appeals precisely to the human heart, which cannot be the subject of any generalization. With the category of heart, everyone is identified in a singular manner, even more than by name. He is reached in that which determines him in a unique and unrepeatable way. He is defined in his humanity from within. The image of the man of concupiscence concerns above all his innermost being Matthew chapter 15 verses 19 and 20. The history of the human heart after original sin is written under the pressure of the threefold concupiscence with which also the deepest image of ethos is connected in its various historical documents. At any rate, that innermost being is also the strength that is Decisive for external human behavior, as well as for the form of the many structures and institutions on the level of social life. If we deduce the content of ethos in its various historical formulations from these structures and institutions, we always encounter this innermost aspect proper to man's inner image. This image is, in fact, the most essential component. The words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially those of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, indicate this fact unmistakably. No study on human ethos can pass by this fact with indifference. In our next reflection, we will therefore try to analyze in a more detailed way Christ's statement. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, or has already made her an adulteress in his heart. In order to understand this text better, we will first analyze its single parts with the goal of reaching afterwards a deeper overall view. We will take into account not only the listeners of that time who heard the Sermon on the Mount with their own ears, but also, as far as possible, the listeners of today, the human beings of our time. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concluded his 34th catechesis, man and woman, he created them a theology of the body. There are three things in this catechesis of our Holy Father which stand out to me, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the universality of the gospel, and concupiscence even yet again. So we'll treat those things and here we are in the first part of Pope John Paul's II, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. The first part of this great work of John Paul II treats the words of Christ. Specifically, now, Christ appealing to the human heart. You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. I say to you, you shall not even look with lust, with a disordered desire upon another, lest you commit adultery in your heart. Christ appeals to the human heart. And in this part of this section, the Holy Father is speaking about commandment and ethos. The Commandment, do this, don't do that. Those are commands. And ethos, the spirit of it all. It's one thing to have the commandment or the law written down. It's another thing to live the spirit of the law. I think that's where he's coming from when he speaks of ethos in point of fact, when our Holy Father uses that word ethos in his Theology of the Body, it's telling because his work as a philosopher, as a professor in the university, was so much treating ethics, what good we should do and what evil we should avoid. And so we see that this Theology of the Body, man and woman, he created them, is an ethical text, a text of ethos the spirit of the law by which we should live. Christ the Lord did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And not only that, but to give us the grace that we need that we might fulfill them. Overarching, it seemed to me, this 34th catechesis treated the Sermon on the Mount. Repeatedly, the Holy Father addressed it. So I'd like to look at those passages. The particular statement of the Sermon on the Mount, whoever looks at a woman to desire her lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in his heart, is the focus. John Paul is focusing on one passage from the Sermon on the Mount. It's several chapters, five, six, seven of St. Matthew, but he's looking right now at this passage because it's part of the theology of the body. Not only to care for our bodily life, that's part of the theology of the body. Get enough sleep, get enough food, get enough exercise, but also to be pure of heart. Whoever looks to desire her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So it's one thing to commit adulterous acts, to act out on adulterous desires, adulterous thoughts, but even those we should avoid the desires disordered desires, lustful desires, desires contrary to chastity. Pope John Paul II acknowledges that the words of our Lord are words of accusation, already committed adultery in his heart. I accuse you of this, we could hear the Lord say. But these words are not only words of accusation. It's a calling us to a purity of heart. The Sermon on the Mount is part of the proclamation of the new ethos, the ethos of the gospel. And so our Lord juxtaposes his new teaching with that first given through Moses on Sinai, not to commit adultery. Now he takes it up a notch, like a Lagasse in the kitchen throwing some spice on some food. Bam! Don't even look with lust. Do not even look with a disordered desire upon the other. This is the ethos of the gospel, a new ethos, an ethos which is echoed in the beatitude. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. And so we recognize in the other the image of God. We recognize in the other a temple of the Holy Spirit by grace and faith and baptism. We recognize in the other an heir Of heaven, a brother or sister in Christ. This is part of the new ethos, the ethos of the gospel, the call to holiness, rejecting all that is evil and embracing all that is good. The ethos that Christ proclaims in the Sermon on the Mount is realistically addressed to historical man who has become the man of concupiscence. Some people will claim, oh, well, this is too hard, especially in our day and age when we're sort of libertines. There are so many who will say there's no such thing as sin. And then, since they say there's no such thing as sin, there's especially no such thing as sexual sin. But the Holy Father is reminding us that Christ's call to purity of heart, to not even desire another with a disordered desire, is realistic. It's possible and definitely with Christ's grace, the grace he won through his saving death and resurrection, it is totally possible. And in point of fact, we can look at the calendar of the saints, saints of many centuries, from the beginning even till our own day. They will show us how realistic the Sermon on the Mount is, how real God's grace is. The ethos that Christ proclaims in the Sermon on the Mount is realistically addressed to historical man, us, in our day, even as it was addressed to those in the day before the Lord's death and resurrection, and even during his 40 days of preaching after his resurrection, now, in our epoch, in these our days, they're addressed to us, these words, even us, we who suffer from that disorder introduced by the fall, the tendency to sin, concupiscence, the technical term for that. And there have been those who would say Christ's death and resurrection have totally overcome concupiscence, our tendency to sin. But we know that is not the case, and it does not seem the Holy Father is embracing that point of view here in this 34th Catechesis. He says historical man has become the man of concupiscence. After the fall, our history is a history marked by the tendency to sin, not only with our souls, but also with our bodies. The Sermon on the Mount... Pope John Paul II continues, Christ turns directly to human beings who belong to a definite society. Jesus Christ belonged to the society where Herod Agrippa was running things, where Pontius Pilate was running things, where Caesar was in Rome. The Lord Jesus Christ lived in the Holy Land, in Palestine. He could walk from Galilee to Jerusalem and back. He could walk in Capernaum and not only near, but on the Sea of Galilee. Our Lord was a man amongst men, and He directs His Sermon on the Mount to His contemporaries then, and even to us today who are still His contemporaries, for He is still alive, glorious, and interceding for us at the Father's right hand, now in heaven, drawing us to Himself, since He has been lifted up. The Sermon on the Mount is not a dead letter. It does not belong just to a past, bygone age. It is timely timely and it is timeless. It is true for every age. The words of the Sermon on the Mount, the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry, allow us to establish a point of contact with the inner experience of historical man, Pope John Paul II wrote, who is the man of concupiscence at every geographical latitude and longitude in various epochs, under different social and cultural conditions. In this passage, we see our Holy Father anticipating his encyclical on the splendor of truth, Veritatis Splendor, which was against moral relativism. There are those who would say, oh, how quaint the gospel is. It was suitable for a bygone era. But here our Holy Father says, no, if it was true then, it is still true now, and it will be true for all eternity, and in fact it is the words of the Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Almighty God, Jesus Christ Himself, during His ministry on earth, calling us all to holiness. Jesus Christ gives us the grace we need to correspond to His preaching, not only the historical man of 30 A.D., but even of 2010 and beyond. Historical man is the man of concupiscence at every geographical latitude, the Northern Hemisphere, and the Southern Hemisphere, in the Middle East, and in North America. There's nowhere on the face of the earth to which these words do not apply. Every geographical latitude and longitude, different social and cultural conditions. Well, Jesus didn't have the internet, so he just doesn't know. (laughs) Jesus never traveled to the moon, so he just doesn't know. The Lord Jesus knows very well. He knows what's in the depths of our hearts. For he made us, and he made us to his own image, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And not only that, he has redeemed us, body and soul, by his death, body and soul, and resurrection, body and soul, like us in all things but sin, our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. The root of the word culture, and our Holy Father is highlighting cultural conditions here, is the word cult, which is the technical term for worship. There is one God, and him alone shall we adore. The Lord Jesus has revealed to us the mystery of the very Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The worship of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, first adored in a revealed way in Israel. This is the basis of culture. How much music, how much art finds its origin in sacred worship, divine worship. Especially in view of the incarnation, God becoming man like us in all things but sin, we can depict our Lord in his human nature. We can depict his blessed mother and his friends, the apostles and saints. This part of culture, sacred art, music, sculpture, painting, literature, all of this part of the glory of God working through us, body and soul. Pope John Paul II continues his treatment of the Sermon on the Mount in this 34th Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body, when he points out that the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, especially these two verses, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, indicate unmistakably the fact that man's inner image is decidedly in the history of the human heart which after original sin is written under the pressure of the threefold concupiscence. Now, I don't know how some people can say or think or teach that John Paul II says concupiscence is not a part of our daily reality. The tendency to sin is with us. The history of the human heart, after original sin, 2010 included, is written under the pressure of the threefold concupiscence, one of which is the tendency to sin with our body, concupiscence of the flesh, as St. John instructs us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, primary author of sacred scripture. John Paul II is not unfamiliar with the sacred scripture. He knows that we are a fallen race in need of God's grace, and any who would teach otherwise are distancing themselves not only from sacred scripture but from the sure and certain teaching of the magisterium as presented by Pope John Paul II in this catechesis. The pressure of the threefold concupiscence affects our human heart. There's no getting away from it. The only way we can be redeemed from our tendency to sin and our actual sinning, acting out in the sinful way, is the grace and mercy of God given us, beginning in baptism, renewed in sacramental confession, the sacrament of penance, and in a worthy communion. All the sacraments, part of God's divine remedy to save us from ourselves, from our tendency to sin, not only in our bodies, but even in our hearts, our deepest desires. The theology of the body of Pope John Paul II takes into account the listeners of that time who heard the Sermon on the Mount with their own ears, the original audience, if you will, but also, as far as possible, the listeners of today, of the human beings of our time. Pope John Paul II is not doing an archaeological curiosity. He's studying the Sacred Scripture and expounding upon the Sacred Scripture for the people of his day and our day it's so over five years ago now that John Paul II went to his eternal reward. We pray the mercy of God be upon him and all of us. For the words of the Sermon of the Mount were addressed not only to men of bygone eras, our Lord's contemporaries during his earthly sojourn. For the words of the Sermon of the Mount have been addressed to every age, even our own. So those who would say, Christ's words are not for us, blessed are the pure of heart. Whoever looks with lust upon another has already committed adultery. Whoever would say these words are not directed to us does not get the picture. Our Lord speaks to every man, woman, and child. Every human being who ever has or ever will be, these words are addressed. Because our human nature is one, and we are a fallen race in need of God's grace. And so, in another vein, Pope John Paul II reminds us that the gospel is a universal gospel, not just for Europeans, not just for Africans, not just for Asians or people of Oceania or from the Western Hemisphere. The gospel is for all peoples, all times, all places. And it's not just a generalization. There are goods which we are to do. The Lord is your God, the Lord alone, therefore him shall you adore. Do this in memory of me. Go show yourselves to the priests. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. These are not generalizations. These are the specifics of our faith, part of the gospel in which we glory. Pope John Paul II was not a relativist, and neither was the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What will set us free? The truth will set us free. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all days, even until the end of the age. All of Scripture could not contain, not even the whole world could contain, everything that the Lord Jesus said or did. So thanks be to God we have been given in Mother Church that pillar and bulwark of truth. Thanks be to God for the blessed ministry of Pope John Paul II, not only his 27 years of pontificate, but especially those five years in which he delivered to us the theology of the body. Pope John Paul continues in this vein, The human being of every time and every place feels himself called in a manner that is adequate, concrete, unrepeatable, because Christ appeals to the human heart, which cannot be the subject of any generalization in three ways, Christ calls us adequately. Hey you, standing in the rain. The Lord Jesus addresses each of us adequately in language which we can understand. Do not look with a disordered desire upon another. Who cannot understand that? He calls us concretely, come follow me. You with your heart. My heart speaks to your heart. Cor ad cor loquitor. Blessed John Henry Newman reminds us concretely. And unrepeatedly, there will never be another you. There will never be another me. So we need to make it count. This is not a dress rehearsal. Finally, two passages on concupiscence in this 34th Catechesis on man and woman, he created them, a theology of the body. Again, Pope John Paul II addresses the threefold concupiscence found in St. John. The threefold concupiscence is, in fact, the heritage of all humanity, and the human heart really participates in it. Here we see the Holy Father echoing teaching found on original sin. It is not by imitation, but by procreation. It's by our sharing in human nature, that we have original sin. And by our sharing in original sin, we have its effects. Suffering, death, ignorance, a difficulty to know the truth, and concupiscence, that tendency to sin. And so again, those who would discount our Holy Father's teaching on concupiscence in his magnum opus, Theology of the Body, seem to be not paying attention. The threefold concupiscence is in fact the heritage of all humanity, and the human heart really participates in it. Not a generic human heart, but every human heart. Consequence of the fall. It affects us all. and We can only under- overcome this consequence of original sin, this tendency to sin, by God's grace given us in holy baptism, renewed in the sacrament of penance, and strengthened in us by worthy reception of Holy Eucharist. The last passage about concupiscence in this 34th catechesis, which I want to touch, goes like this. The human being is precisely the man of concupiscence, whose mystery and heart is known to Christ, for he himself knew what was in every man. Again, how can someone, how could anyone deny the role concupiscence plays in Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body? The human being is precisely the man of concupiscence. There's no human being who is not suffering from concupiscence, the tendency to do evil. It's part of our condition. That's why Christ came to redeem us from not only a tendency to to sin, but our sins are acting out on that disordered desire. The heart is known to Christ. The mystery of every human being is known to Christ. And He makes known to us not only ourselves, but the Eternal Father and His holy divine will. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Pure not only in our desires or in our actions, but even in our doctrine heresy, a sin against purity of doctrine. All of these things and more make up Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. We've just been focusing on one or another aspect of these passages. There is more. Our Holy Father speaks about anthropological foundation about the ethical character, about judgment, about analyses. He gives us, repeatedly, passage after passage of sacred scripture. The book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 23. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verse 24. John, chapter 2, verse 25. And in this way, he gives us a comprehensive vision of the human person made in the image of God. Until next time. God bless you.